From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics Claudia Puig, Amy Nicholson, and Peter Rayner have a full slate of new movies. It's a particularly big week for documentaries, including Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. The director of the groundbreaking film goes deep in examining his approach to making what's considered one of the scariest horror movies of all time. The documentary Coded Bias looks at an MIT researcher's concerning findings on facial recognition algorithms. Writer-director Anish Chaganti's horror thriller Run stars Sarah Paulson and Kira Allen. Our critics also tell us their favorite holiday films. It's Film Week on KPCC. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. I'm joined this week by film critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, Claudia Puig, president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and senior programmer of our own AFI Film Festival in L.A., and Amy Nicholson, who's film writer for The New York Times and host of the podcasts Unspooled and Zoom. We begin with the documentary from Romania Collective. It's directed by Alexander Nanau. Amy, tell us about Collective, please. <laughs> Gladly. You know, of all the silver linings of being a film lover this year, at least one of them is we're getting to start the top of the show with a Romanian documentary <laughs> that is just terrific, terrific. I'll set the stage of what it's about really quickly. Uh, people might remember that in October of 2015, there was a giant fire at a nightclub in Romania at a nightclub called Collective. So it got, became known as the Collective Fire. What happened is that at this concert, 27 young people died initially, but then nearly another 40 people died later in the hospital of infection. And so this is a documentary about a few things, about journalism, about the government responsibility, what we should respect, what we should expect from our government, and about how to figure out the truth when when people don't want you to know. Because what happens is the journalists start by just trying to ask one question, like why did the medical system fail these kids in a hospital? And the answer they get leads to the next question, leads to the next question, and it winds up ex- exposing this entire scaffolding of corruption and bribes that kind of leads, seems like it leads to the top. It's incredible to watch. Collective, the documentary, Claudia. I agree. Um, that scaffolding that Amy mentions is so fascinating. It plays out like a thriller. Um, this, by the way, is also Romania's official Oscar selection. First time they've ever uh, put forth a documentary in that for that honor. Um, it is. It, it just really reminds us of the importance of investigative journalism, the watchdog function of the press, 
Um, and it's, it's, it feels like a Pandora's box. It just leads the specifics of it. Just one thing leads to the next. And it's, uh, you know, it is, it is so disturbing, but it also is very rewarding in the sense that we see how journalism ought to function. Collective Peter. Yeah, it's a really terrific movie. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a, a true, true life, uh, newspaper, uh, investigative, uh, thriller, um, and uh, what's interesting also is that the the uh, the lead, the investigation uh, was led by a sports newspaper, the Budapest Sports Gazette. Uh, this, the lead reporter was a, a Catalan Talantan, who uh, is a remarkable uh, reporter investigator. He grills the health minister. Uh, ultimately, this all led to the resignation of the, um, the prime minister, um, and a new. Uh, uh, health uh, official was put in place who uh, has to deal with all of the stuff that came before, and, and it's it's um, among many other things, sort of a film about how an idealist tries to cope with the reality of the situation in, in a political arena. So it's 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 quite remarkable on every level. All right, we're talking about the documentary collective, uh, and you know it sounds like when you're when you're talking about a documentary on corruption that can get so complicated with so many moving parts very quickly amy how is it that the filmmakers uh, navigate through that and and make it clear yeah they they really navigate it just linearly because the way that one question leads to the next you see the journalists in the room like they get one crazy piece of information and they say well what does this mean and where do we go with this and so they really you're watching as they figure out the next step and you're kind of hand in hand with them as they walk along. I mean, you're there on this granular level where you watch how they moderate even the violent comments they'll allow on their comment section. You're there as, you know, they figure it out. So it really feels like the audience is being brought along and not you're doing kind of a post-mortem something incredibly complicated, which does get really unwieldy. A collective, the documentary from Romania we're talking about, directed by Alexander Nanau. Uh, the film is unrated. A final thought from you, Claudia, uh, uh, about the film and um, why for someone who wouldn't necessarily care about corruption in another country, why as a film this is so compelling? Well, it just, you know, it's one of those fly-on-the-wall documentaries, so it really does play out like a thriller. Um, the characters are interesting. There is a particular character who's brought in, uh, well, there's the there's the main journalist who is uh, at the head of it all, uh, Tolontan, and this is a sports gazette that, um, you know, that he works for, and, you know, he's fascinating, and then they bring in... Um, this wonderful survivor um, who is badly burned, but we, we see her story of recovery and activism. So there's a lot more going on, even in addition to the investigative uh, press aspect. Collective can be seen on Lemley's Virtual Cinema, as well as the on-demand platforms iTunes, Vudu, and Fandango. Now it's unrated. The horror thriller Run stars Sarah Paulson and Kira Allen. The film is directed and co-written by Anish Chaganti. Claudia, please start us on Run. I love this film. I am a fan of Anash Chaganti and his uh, co-writer and producer, Sev Ohanian and Natalie Kasabian. They did Searching, which was that thriller that came out a couple years ago. It was a Sundance hit. It had John Cho. And he. it was basically all done through screens, laptops, and phones. And it was really well done. And this shows that that was not just a one-off. This is a 
really perfectly paced, well-edited, nimbly acted um, thriller. And um, we have uh, Sarah Paulson, who's always fantastic. And then a new actor, uh, Kira Allen, who plays her 17-year-old daughter, and one of the great things about it is that she is the, the character is in a wheelchair and the real actress is in a wheelchair. You know, we've certainly seen enough movies like Wait Until Dark or Rear Window where people are, you know, some in some way disabled, but they're played by abled actors. And this is one case in which they cast uh, Shiganti was wise enough to cast somebody who actually was, you know, differently abled and, and um just does such an amazing job and, and focuses on her strength and her character, not so much her disabilities, but her, not her victimhood so much as, as her kind of fierce um, capability. We're talking about the horror thriller Run, Amy. Yeah, the setup here is it's kind of the Munchausen syndrome version of misery. You know, you have a girl in a wheelchair trapped by her mother who seems to be very devoted to the idea of keeping her daughter under her thumb. And what I appreciate about it is that the daughter is very smart from the beginning. You know, this isn't like you're kind of yelling at her, like, figure out what's happening. You know that something is wrong. Like you can tell from the beginning that she's aware something is off. You know, she's trying very hard to get to the mailbox before her mother does, for example, because it's even though her mother is insisting to everybody how thrilled she is she's going away to school, this daughter doesn't quite buy it. What I think that Anish Shigandri does really well in how he tells this story is he really emphasizes, you know, her brains in the how. You know, the scenes are really structured on, like, how is she going to get out of her room? Like, how is she going to figure out what this mystery pill is? And it's so small that it becomes thrilling. You're really right there with her as you're panicking. I mean, I will say, like, for Sarah Paulson, this is the kind of role she can do in her sleep. So you're like, okay, Sarah Paulson, you're doing your thing. But it's a fun watch. Run is rated PG-13, and it's on the Hulu streaming service. The documentary Coded Bias uh, takes us to the MIT Media Lab and researcher Joy Bulamwini and uh, her uh, media research of fallout from uh, discovery about uh, facial recognition algorithms. The film is directed by Shalini Kantaya. Peter, what would you think of Coded Bias? It's really good. It's, it's you know, an eye-opener. Joy Bolamini, uh, who, who is a doctoral candidate at MIT, um, who I should also mention, so it's an absolutely delightful personality who seems to own more uh, glasses than Elton John, um, it is, uh, was doing facial recognition experiments um, using AI and noticed that uh, the, um, the, the, you know, they didn't, the, the recognition didn't recognize her face uh, particularly well at all. Um, she put a white mask uh, in front of her face, and suddenly the recognition was quite a bit better. And she realized that there's a whole gender-race bias uh, involved in facial recognition algorithms, um, and this led to you know a whole series of of discoveries and revelations and connections with with other researchers uh, around the world, um, you know, who who have come up with similar. Uh, stories, and it's it's really uh, you know it, it it points up the the sort of homogeneous Silicon Valley uh, programmers who are mostly white men who, who have been programming these algorithms. So you think that, that you know, facial recognition software and so forth is, 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 is neutral, but uh, actually there's, there's you know, quite a bit of bias built into it. And, uh, and that's what this film uh, you know, exposes and explores with, with Joy as, as kind of the, uh, the point person. Claudia, what do you think of Coded Bias? 
Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it's really a wake-up call, and, and it's a call to action, um, you know, for us to sort of put pressure on Silicon Valley and the creators of technology, uh, you know, to to n- not have that bias, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, institutionalized or and, and whether they're unaware of it. I think it's it's very thought provoking. Um, I saw this at Sundance, and it, this is one of the movies that has really stayed with me since Sundance. Um, and as as Peter pointed out, I think you know through following Joya Bulamini, we really get a sense of it. We also, uh, what I love about how um, Shalini Kantaya makes this film is that she also taught it's very um user friendly it's very you know it's not it's not highly technical talk. uh yeah exactly it's just very you know she follows she goes to real people and we get a real sense of this and we you don't have to be you know a techie to understand what's going on and they also go to england and look at you know the fact that in london what's going on there they go to a, a, a there's a they follow a group that does uh that sort of watches the watchers because um, it's a very kind of a high surveillance city in London. And so, you know, we look at okay. we see the whole global picture as well. Coded bias, the documentary, Amy. Yeah, I mean, you're leaping all over in this documentary. You really get the sense that uh, Shalini Kentayai is like, I have to get out everything I need to get out in here. You know, you're talking about like an apartment in Brooklyn that has biometric scanning at the front door, which the residents hate. Uh, you're talking about you know, the activists in Hong Kong who are spraying security cameras black. You're, you're leaping everywhere. And, and if there is one kind of thing just at least to like walk away with that I think the documentary does hammer home. It's, you know, this idea of what they're calling algorithmic oppression, which is a new word to me, but it is about how we really cannot trust what we consider to be neutral programming, that all of the innate biases that we have as humans, we just put them into the algorithms for the machines that are just doing a new form of oppression that then affects people's credit scores. It affects who gets into college and who gets a scholarship. It affects your mortgages. It's now affecting teacher evaluations and prison sentences. We, we hear from people who are affected by both of those things. And it, it, you really walk away with a sense of, oh, this is just everywhere. And we have to stop and talk about it right now before it gets even more out of hand. We're talking about the documentary Coded Bias on Facial Recognition Algorithms, directed by Shalini Kantaya, and uh, the film's unrated. It's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Steve McQueen, the director, has a new anthology uh, with five episodes, uh, and uh, this uh, small axe uh, is the anthology Mangrove, tells the story of the Mangrove Nine who clashed with London police in 1970. It stars Letitia Wright, Sean Parks, and Malachi Kirby, uh, the film again, uh, or the series, I should say, directed by Steve McQueen, who did 12 Years a Slave, uh, among other films. And it's written by Alistair Siddons. Claudia, what do you think of Mangrove? I like this a lot. I'm very, now that I've seen the very first film in this five-film saga, I can't wait to see the next ones. Um, This one kicks off, it's largely a courtroom drama, although the scene is really set in um, this West Indian neighborhood in Notting Hill in 1970. So you really get a sense of the the place. You have it's very the time and place. You the reggae music. It's set around this restaurant, which is called Mangrove, and um, it's you know you can almost smell the the food. It's just it's that rich in place and and setting. Um, 
Uh, and then, of course, it's an incredibly powerful and resonant and timely story about the institutional racism on the part of the police in London. Um, and there's also a sense of hope that is imbued in it, which I, I really also appreciate. It's, it's a love letter to West Indian life. Um, and I also find it interesting that Letitia Wright, who was in Black Panther, plays a member of the Black Panthers in this, too. Um, and she's excellent in it. Um, it's, it's so well acted by everybody. Um, and uh, it's just super, you know, it, it's timely. There's no gaudy theatrics in the courtroom. It's intense and just uh, really, really well directed, well edited. Everything about it is just top notch. And it's streaming on Amazon Prime Video. We're talking about the five-part uh, anthology series Small Axe and the initial uh, episode Mangrove, directed by Steve McQueen, who does all of the episodes. Alistair uh, Siddons is the uh, writer. It's unrated again on Amazon Prime. We'll continue on Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. We'll be back in just a moment. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Amy Nicholson, Claudia Puig, and Peter Rayner. Next up is The Last Vermeer, starring Clay's Bang and Vicky Creeps, Guy Pierce in the cast as well. Dan Friedkin makes his directing debut, uh, the film written by Mark Fergus, John Orloff, and Hawk Ostby. Peter, what do you think of The Last Vermeer? Well, it's an interesting subject for a movie. I'm not sure it quite comes to life. Uh, it's based on a real character, Hans von Megeren, uh, played by a Guy Pierce. who um, uh, this uh, film takes place uh, shortly after World War II, and uh, uh, he's uh, suspected of having uh, collaborated with the Nazis. He's a, a sort of a low-level artist um, who uh, is um, possibly uh, been, you know, selling uh, paintings to the Nazis, uh, particularly Hermann Goering, there was a, a painting uh, called Christ and the Adulterist by Vermeer, uh, supposedly, and uh, that's sort of at the center of the investigation by uh, uh, Clay's Bang, who uh, had been in the military and now is an investigator. Uh, he's also Jewish, which um, seems to be somewhat of an incentive to get to the bottom of exactly how much of a collaborator uh, von Megeren was. Um, and there's a big trial that uh, takes place in the uh, near the end of the film that sort of resolves everything. Um, it's it's an interesting concept, you know, to sort of see is is he a collaborator? What does the what does collaboration mean? Um, you know, at one point, uh, von Megren, you know, gets on his high horse and says, you know, that I believe every fascist deserves to be swindled. Uh, one of the problems I had is that it's a little too uh, digressive. There's a, you know, we don't need to know so much about the marital problems of of, uh, of uh, Clay Bang's character and and uh, Guy Pierce. I, I assume he was told to do this, but he really overacts. Um, and uh, also the the Vermeers. There are only about thirty Vermeers that that we know of. Uh, he painted, you know, very few canvases. Um, and they're all highly distinctive, and the, the, the central canvas that's um, uh, under investigation here looks so unlike any Vermeer that <laughs> you sort of have to wonder, you know, what, what were they thinking in even imagining that this was an, an original? The last Vermeer is the drama. Claudia, what do you think? 
Yeah, uh, you know, it's an inherently fascinating and wild uh, true story, uh, Hans von Mengren's story. And I just felt like this was occasionally dull. It was sort of solid, but, you know, that's not, that doesn't reflect really what the story was about. And I agree, Guy Pierce was chewing the scenery. And then Vicki Cripps, who is so good in Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, is given just kind of a throwaway role here. I thought Clay Spang was very good. Um, but this vivid figure just deserves something a little bit more, I don't know, uh, more enthralling and, and vivid, too. I feel like this was kind of solid at, at best and lackluster um, at worst. Amy, what do you think of the last Vermeer? Yeah, it's it's all done in very very large strokes. I mean, I do appreciate this time period and these questions of like how are we, how are we going to clean up this disaster that's just happened? Like who are the collaborators? What do we have to do to get everybody back on the rails? That's a that is a compelling framework for the story. But it's done in such strange large strokes. I mean, my favorite thing about about the movie is that how everyone in the film when they meet this captain, Clay's Bang, they just size him up and immediately in 30 seconds try to psychoanalyze his emotional wounds for some reason. It's like minute 1. Hello, nice to meet you. Didn't your dad love you? And you're like, what is happening? This movie is bizarre. The last Vermeer, based on Jonathan Lopez's book, starring Clay Spang, Vicky Crepes, and Guy Pierce. Dan Friedkin, the director, it's rated R at the Vineland Drive-In. Sound of Metal stars Riz Ahmed, Olivia Cook, and Mathieu uh, Amalric. The film's directed by Darius Martyr, who co-wrote the screenplay with his brother Abraham Martyr. Claudia, let's talk about Sound of Metal. Um, yeah, this is a really, really, I, I like this movie a lot. Um, and it's all anchored on the amazing performance of Riz Ahmed as this heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing and his life gets turned upside down. And he also has an addiction problem. Um, so there's a lot going on here. Um, Jerry Smarter co-wrote this screenplay with Derek Cianfrance, um, with whom he wrote The Place Beyond the Pines, which is also a film that I really loved. And Derek Cianfrance did Blue Valentine. So um, this has some of, you can definitely feel that moodiness from both of those films. But the thing that I love most about this movie is the use of the sound design. It has the best sound design that I've I've heard, seen or heard in any movie this year. And it's, I feel like sound design is kind of undervalued. You know, we, we focus so much more on cinematography, but um, we are so immersed in this as the lead character played by Riz Ahmed, uh, his, his hearing deteriorates, we're put into his position. So we miss the sound of words. We, you know, things go silent. Um, it, so they use sound in such an interesting way, in such an immersive way, so that we feel his disorientation and his pain. And um, Riz Ahmed, I, I think he's just such a great actor, whether it was in Nightcrawler or The Night, the night Of. He's just, um, this is a real showcase for his acting. Well, and people who do sound design are, are standing and applauding you, Claudia, for recognizing uh, the talent that goes into it. Sound of Metal, Amy. I'd love to hear that they're going to remix their applauding sound and make it sound even louder <laughs> <Right>. than it is. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Riz Ahmed really is, I think, one of our most watchable talents right now. And this film, I think, leans heavily on it. Like, he's very convincing when he's drumming. He's very convincing at sign language. He's very convincing being frustrated. You know, this is a movie so much about denial. Like, can he get his life back just the way he had it? You know, and, and it's to me that was really relatable about it. You know, that struggle of like when your plans get dramatically changed, do you accept it? Do you fight back? And he chooses to fight back. And you can you can see why in here. He has this girlfriend in his um 
musical life when he's a touring uh, person played by Olivia Cook, who's just this amazing bohemian and their van life is wonderful and she's wonderful and you get why he wants to go back there. But I appreciate that the film also really hammers home the point that like by rejecting the life that's now been put upon you, that's that's also an insult and a statement and it's not comfortable and I don't know if you're making the right decision for yourself. So it's complicated and it's complicated. I want to love this a little bit more than I did, but it's a it's a really interesting cerebral watch. Sound of Metal is rated R. It's at the Vineland Drive-In in Los Angeles County and on Amazon Prime Video for streaming. The documentary Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist, in which the director of that film uh, talks about... Um, the filmmaking process. Amy, leap of faith. Yeah, this is not your typical kind of talking heads doc fanboy film about a movie that you might love. Although if you are an exorcist head, this will be <laughs> really satisfying to watch. Um, the documentary filmmaker here, uh, Alexander Philippe, he does these deep spelunking documentaries. He did one into Alien last year. He did one into just the three minute shower scene of Psycho. Um, and, but he is a person who's really curious about craft. And here he kind of pairs away even extra guest voices, and only talks to to uh, Friedkin about his choices and his decisions. And so it's really fascinating to kind of get inside Friedkin's head in this way. Like he does all the talking alongside visuals. You know, when needed, Filippo uh, cut to Citizen Kane or to like a painting by Caravaggio to represent what he um, thinks that Friedkin is talking about. I, as a person who loves The Exorcist deeply and really enjoys so much of Friedkin's work, you know, it's interesting to hear him go back and kind of talk about how he made the decisions here with what he calls, you know, sleepwalking confidence. And there's a lot of stuff I didn't realize that he um, deliberately chose a, a cameraman who had worked shooting documentaries about Fidel Castro in order to get this um, fresh one take documentary feel to the film, which I don't think I was ever that consciously aware of. So I appreciate that this isn't like a sugary celebration. And maybe you have to be like a complete nerd for craft to love this, but I I deeply loved it. We're talking about director Alexander O'Philippe's documentary Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. Claudia. Yeah, I, I don't think I loved it quite as much as Amy. I do love The Exorcist. Um, and I, I very rarely ever long for talking heads. Um, but in this case, I feel like we could have used some maybe. Um, maybe just to escape being so much in Friedkin's head. I would have, I, I felt like I wanted to hear from Linda Blair. I realized you can't hear from Max Oncito or Jason Miller, but um, who sadly passed on. But I, I, I don't know. I just felt like some of it felt um, like he wasn't the most reliable of narrators. He, um, he talks about how he's a one take person, but then he sort of says other things that sort of belie that. Maybe that's the whole, maybe that's part of what's intriguing about getting into his head. Um, but, you know, he was I also feel like he's very intent on burnishing his legend. And certainly he is a wonderful filmmaker. But, um, you know, he talks about not being attracted to ambiguity. But then he talks about how many interpretations of the exorcist there are. So I don't know. I, I kind of I wish that the I, I understand what Philippe was doing and I admire it, probably admire it more than enjoyed it. Leap of Faith, William Friedkin, On the Exorcist, unrated documentary, and it's on the horror streaming service Shudder. The biographical drama Last Call uh, depicts the last days of the poet Dylan Thomas, Reese Ephens, and John Malkovich star Stephen Bernstein, the writer-director Peter. 
Well, uh, this is a, a long slog through a, uh, a very dark time at the end of Dylan Thomas's life when he was, you know, downing uh, a dozen plus uh, whiskeys um, and then going on a tour, mostly of women's colleges, uh, giving readings uh, for money uh, to support himself and a suffering wife and uh, children back home in, uh, in England. Um, he, it, uh, Reese uh, Ephens is, is a wonderful actor, and, and I have to say that, you know, when he's uh, reciting uh, Thomas's poetry and, and the scenes that we see him doing that uh, in, in the colleges uh, from under Milkwood, especially, I mean, they're beautiful line readings, not not quite as good as the ones I gave as a narrator in the summer camp production. <laughs> <laughs> That's a high bar to Enough. cross. Though. That's a high bar, I know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, you know, as a character study of, of, a, of a character in, 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 in torment, you know, on, in the abyss, uh, it, it is fascinating, but also, you know, somewhat repetitive and one note. Um, and, uh, he's very full of himself, the character Dylan Thomas in the film, which, you know, is justified in some sense, but in another sense, it's like, you know, come off it. Uh, Malkovich has a sort of strange role as the physician who keeps telling him to stop drinking or he'll die. Uh, Tony Hale is a wonderful actor, is uh, John Malcolm Brennan, who was a real character uh, and, and ultimately wrote a book about his uh, last days uh, shepherding uh, Thomas around. Um, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's, uh, some of it is in black and white. There are some you know, color sequences as well. I think you have to sort of really be into Dylan Thomas and, and, uh, you know, and into the abyss to, to really get much out of this because it is rather a sloggy, repetitive experience. Last call, Claudia. Yeah, definitely sloggy and repetitive. Um, this film has been kind of kicking around for a while. It was made in 2016. It was originally titled Dominion. Um, and um, apparently the uh, screenwriter Stephen Bernstein wrote it while staying in the same Chelsea hotel where uh, Dylan Thomas famously were you know, came into the lobby and announced that he just had 18 straight whiskeys. Um, and that's been questioned, but the, the, I don't know, the whole, I felt it was so talky and tedious, the drunken posturing, the besotted rantings, those get old very quickly. Um, and then the flashing forward and back, it was a little more obfuscating than illuminating. Last call, the biographical drama written and directed by Stephen Bernstein. You can see it at the Lot Fashion Island, Newport Beach, and the Metropolitan Fiesta Theater in Santa Barbara. It's unrated. Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square is, as you would expect, a musical. It's directed by Debbie Allen. Maria S. Schlatter is the screenwriter. It stars Christine Baranski, Jennifer Lewis, and Dolly Parton, Amy. This is Netflix's version of community theater, which I don't really mind. You know, it's it's a very casual um, film about Dolly Parton as this um, angel, kind of in this bathed in this ultra angelic ring light, dressed in gray rags like an urchin from 1910, being the first homeless person who's lived in this like small town around the square where every all of the action takes place. Um, the entire town has been sold to a conglomerate by Christine Baranski to become a mall. And she's the kind of cartoonishly evil person who's, you know, handing eviction notices to children. Um, there's a minister and a wife who form a resistance against her and they sing about their hopes for the town and they sing about their hopes for their fertility treatments. Um, it, it's the kind of just like cornball 
honestly a little bit charming musical where everybody says exactly what they think and everybody knows exactly what kind of movie they're in and everybody knows that this is pretty ridiculous and there's a child bartender uh, played by a really charming kid named um, Stella Kimbrough Jones who pours whiskey to like get Christine Baranski to talk about her emotions. I mean, I, I, I feel ashamed saying that I wound up enjoying this after groaning through the first half hour. Oh, Dolly Parton's in it. How could it not be I charming? Know. And it's an excellent week for Dolly Parton to play an angel. You know, as we all know that she helped fund um, some of the research that it looks like it might work into a successful uh, COVID vaccination. Um, yeah, there It is faintly Christian, um, but I will say that the film mostly worships Dolly Parton above all. <laughs> Dolly... And that the worship of Dolly does cross the aisle. Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, unrated Netflix musical, starring Christine Baranski, Jennifer Lewis, and Miss Parton herself. We have much more to talk about with our critics. We'll be back in a moment. We just heard uh, Amy Nicholson talk about Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, a new Netflix musical. A little bit later, we're going to talk about our critics' picks for holiday favorites that are available to stream. That's coming up on Film Week. We have a couple more theatrical or uh, streaming new films to talk about, including Saul and Ruby's Holocaust Survivor Band, a documentary directed by Todd Lending which uh, follows Saul Dreyer and Ruby Sosnowich on their musical journey. Peter, please tell us about Saul and Ruby's Holocaust Survivor Band. Yeah, well, Saul and, and Ruby both you know, grew up in, um, in uh, Poland uh, as, as uh, young boys and then um, uh, you know, were faced with the Holocaust. Uh, Saul, I believe, was you know, hung out, um, hit out in the, in the woods, uh, um, and uh, Ruby was uh, in... Um, concentration camps. They uh, ultimately both moved to America. They married, uh, retired to South Florida, and um, decided to uh, start a, a klezmer band, uh, sort of, you know, to remind them of their of their past and also as a sort of pickup uh, for the future, something fun to do. Um, and so they did this, and their goal was to bring the band ultimately back to Poland uh, where they hadn't visited in, in many, many, many years. Uh, and um, so that's, that's the, the framework for the movie. Uh, it, the, the band itself and the music part of it is, is almost peripheral to just our learning about these, these two wonderful gentlemen, um, both of whose wives you know, were extremely ill during the making of the film. Uh, and um, what always amazes me about these films with with holocaust survivors is is how often you see this this incredible um uh indomitable spirit uh despite you know the incredible horrors that they lived through um when they do go back to poland um uh, i believe it was saul was goes to warsaw where he grew up and recognizes almost nothing because the city had been completely leveled uh during the war and so he's trying to go back to his old haunts and doesn't really recognize everything Whereas uh, Ruby, I believe, is, goes to Krakow, uh, another Polish town, and um, finds the apartment where where he he grew up with his with his family, um, and he's all excited. But then he he goes into the vestibule and he he starts to go up the stairs to where the the apartment is, and and suddenly he just cannot do it. He breaks down and and he doesn't do it, and it's an incredibly powerful moment. Mm. 
uh, I, I can only imagine. Saul and Ruby's Holocaust Survivor Band, the documentary directed by Todd Lending. It's unrated, and it starts streaming next week on Fandango Now and Google Play on their on-demand platforms. The documentary Belushi brings together Jim Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Dan Aykroyd, along with others, to talk about the late John Belushi. The film is directed by R.J. Cutler. Claudia? Yeah, I, um, I, this is a very detailed, intimate, and adoring movie. And um, it has a, a style that's a little unusual in that uh, we're hearing the interviews uh, that have been done over the course of years with Belushi's widow and some of the people who have now passed on, um, like Carrie Fisher and um, Harold Ramis. And a part of, we're seeing other visuals. We're seeing sort of archival footage as we hear that. And I don't know. I felt like a, a context was maybe missing here. We get the personal examination. We know he had an emotionally absent father, and he lived with a lot of self-doubt. He had an addictive personality, and of course, we know what that led to. And it's you know we see uh, examples of his talent, but I, I feel like a larger mm. context maybe uh, in the scheme of things would have been useful here. Maybe I just feel like it, it's not the documentary, the ultimate documentary of John Belushi that. Um, we still need to see. Peter, you have a quick thought on Belushi. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating to sort of, you know, hear from the various uh, people involved uh, about what they observed of, of Belushi's decline. But uh, it, it, it ultimately doesn't really get you inside of, of, of what was, you know, his demons. And, and, and there's there's so much to do with his drug usage and and all that, that you know, it. I sort of tuned out after a while. I, I was grateful for uh, some of the clips from, you know, National Lampoon and and uh, you know other films that he did was in, but but I, I do think that as a character study, it uh, it really didn't quite fill out. Uh, Amy, quick thought on Belushi, the documentary. Yeah, the, the love is definitely there, and you want to love the love, especially like I I really appreciated hearing from Belushi's wife, who they started dating in high school, but it glosses over when Jane Curtin tries to say, "Here's how awful he really could have been on on the Saturday Night Live set." Um, there's some anecdotes I like that he would use his fame to walk inside people's houses and make a sandwich, just strangers, and say, "I'm Belushi, it's that. okay." Yeah, but I have. To, uh, but when it turns into an addiction story, the thing it it, it isn't that interesting. You know, I, I like appreciating how loved he was, but I don't feel like I knew him any better myself. It's a Showtime documentary, Belushi, directed by R.J. Cutler, and it's unrated. I want to uh, hear from our critics, their picks for holiday streaming recommendations. Uh, Peter, what have you got that you uh, think people should check out? Well, I don't know how original my ideas are, but uh, uh, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> yeah. Um but uh, also uh, Bad Santa. Uh, just, oh, I love that. Which is, you know, the, the uh, just a, a great movie. Um, and uh, uh, Shop Around the Corner is just a, one of my favorite films ever, the Lubitsch film with mm-hmm. Margaret Sullivan and, and Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, I think is, is one of the great all-time holiday films. Uh, and uh, both the Gillian Armstrong and the Greta Gerwig Little Women, I think, uh, are certainly, you know, eminently viewable. Meet Me in St. Louis, I know you were also going to mention, which classic musical. Great one. Yeah. All right. Uh, Amy, what are, what are your, uh, what's your recommendation for the holiday? 
Well, I want to say what I'm going to be having on during Thanksgiving, which is that Criterion has a couple concert documentaries that are just the perfect thing to like have in the background, to enjoy, to hang out, to like cook to and feel like is just it puts my, me in a festive mood. Um, I don't really need to talk that much, I think, about D.A. Pennebaker's Monterey Pop concert doc from 1967, because everybody knows that that's legendary. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Otis Redding. But I wanted to give a special um, shout out to the Total Balalaika show, which is also on Criterion, which is just like the definition of festive. And the Total Balalaika show, it's from it's a concert doc from 1993, which is two years after the end of the Cold War. And the Finnish director that I think a lot of people listen to this really appreciate um, Aki Korismaki, he filmed a concert there that was a 70,000 person concert uh, for this joint show between the Red Army Choir and the Leningrad Cowboys. And the Red Army Choir, they're this like massive all-male Russian military choir that goes back to the 20s. You know, they toured for Stalin, but by this point in their history, they were more of an anti-war group. You know, they sang at the Berlin Wall with Roger Waters, you know, where they sang songs about the wall. Um, and the Lenin Cowboy, Leningrad Cowboys, of course, like that big hair comedy rock and roll band, you know, that Aki Kurismaki actually made up to make fun of the collapsing Soviet Union. And so together, they just have this like delightful um, concert that's like folk songs and made up folk songs and covers of Tom Jones's Delilah and the Turtles So Happy Together and some Skinnerd. And, and it's fun, but it also, to me, like rewatching it again lately, I was thinking how how much it reminds you of like, the optimism that we can get through yeah. any sort of rough time if you have a sense of humor, you know, and if you love culture together. The Total Balalaika show streaming on Criterion. And Claudia, you got about a minute's worth of your picks? Well, also, uh, I mean, St. Louis, I have a very personal connection, which I think I might have spoken about before. My mother, your mother, loved the voice of Judy Garland. Yeah. In, uh so into Spanish. And so that I will always watch it with my daughters for Christmas. It's just something that, you know, has as much as I love the movie and love the music. I also have this connection to my mother who's yeah. passed away. So that um, that's very powerful. And I also really love Joyeux no- Noel, um, the movie that was set during World War One, when which there was a truce um, for Christmas, but it also, you know, tells the story, the poignancy of the war, the warriors who are, you know, trying to hold on to some sense of, you know, Yuletide something, uh, you know, charity or something, but they, but they also have to return to battle and it doesn't really change the course of the war. And yet it's this extraordinary moment in history too. So, um, it's a French film by Christian Carillon. Joya Noel is on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, and Google Play. Those are some of our critics' picks for the holidays. Coming up, we'll remember Indian actor Sumitra Chatterjee, who died at the age of 85, and Peter will talk with us about his acting legacy. We'll also talk about a wonderfully self-reflective piece that Peter has written for Alta Online. That's coming up on Film Week. Remind you, you can listen to Film Week, of course, every Friday and Saturday on KPCC, but it's also available at your convenience as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Join this week by critics Peter Rayner, Amy Nicholson, and Claudia Puig. Peter's with us for the final segment. First, we want to pay notice to uh, Sumitra Chatterjee, legend of Indian cinema, 
who uh, succumbed to COVID-19 at the age of 85. Uh, Chatterjee with an incredible filmography of more than 200 films. Peter, tell us about the range of his performances. Yeah, he was one of the great actors, and um, uh, he made 14 movies with uh, Sajashit Ray, who was one of the world's greatest directors. Um, many of the films he made that he did not do with Ray uh, are still unavailable in this country. Um, but the the films that he did for Ray especially are absolutely incredible. Uh, Distant Thunder, Devi, uh, the first film he ever made as an actor was the third in the Opu trilogy, The World of Opu. Uh, which is probably the greatest film uh, depiction of a marriage I've ever seen. Uh, Days and Nights in the Forest is, is a masterpiece. Uh, he played opposite Sharmila Tagore, another great actress that he played opposite with. He, he was his wife in World of Opu, and, and in a, uh, Devi, an incredible movie he played uh, towards the end of, his, of Ray's life, a film of Enemy of the People, an adaptation of Ibsen. Uh, he was uh, he was one of these actors who who didn't show you the acting, and so uh, you know. But but the the collaborations that he had with Ray yeah. are really right up there with you know the great collaborations in film history with you know Mafuni and Kurosawa, Mastriani and Fellini, Von Sito and and Bergman and Troel, Bogart and Houston, De Niro and Scorsese. You know, I mean, they they were such an incredible team and and he had such a, a range of, of of subtlety and nuance in his performances that uh you know he really was one of the great actors and his collaboration with ray i think is is right up there with the best work that's ever been done it's talking about sumitra chatterjee who died at the age of 85 more than 200 films uh to uh his credit in which he acted uh Peter, you wrote a piece, A Film Critic Takes Direction, uh, for Alta Online. We have a link to it on our, our Film Week page, in which you shared some things I didn't even know about you, having known you for decades now as a critic on Film Week, and before that, reading your film criticism in the Herald Examiner and Los Angeles Times. But I love how personal this piece is, talking about your childhood and, and the power of films, and how much your parents supported you in that, even taking you to Judith Christ, the, the terrific uh, Critics Film Festival, not far from where you lived. Yeah, I, um, you know, writing this piece for, for Alta magazine, I was really, you know, it sort of brought me back to rediscover a lot of the feelings that I had, uh, you know, and, and why I loved film so much growing up. I, I grew up in New York and in the suburbs, and I was able to see a lot of great movies in the revival houses and occasionally on TV. That was how you saw these films in those days. And, um, uh, you know, and, and it's always a movie for many of us, you know, including non-critics that sort of really opened our eyes and changed our lives and, you know, said, this, this is what movies can be. This is something that's going to stay with me. And for me, that movie was, was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And so when um, Judith Christ had this this weekend where she showed a lot of, uh, Raymond Chandler movies like Big Sleep and many others that are less well known. Robert Altman was the guest, and and The Long Goodbye was about to come out, and they had a, a preview of it for the uh, for the paying guests. And and I was still in college, but you know my parents funded me the uh, the weekend, and uh, and I was so nervous. You know I didn't I, I revered Altman, but I hardly said anything to him except at the very end I just went over and sort of blurted out how much I loved this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when I was in college, I, I wrote reviews almost every week for my college newspaper, and and this all led to my you know being a film critic, and 
and and I think the, the the piece is also about you know what happens if you you know if you really love a movie and a filmmaker and you're in a position such as I am to to cross paths with these people you know and how do you deal with that as a critic you know I mean there are all sorts of red flags and white flags and uh, so so I I did you know meet up with Altman over the years and and it it, it was a, an interesting experience you know because he was very good at manipulating critics and. At the same time, uh, you know, he he had this incredible body of work, and critics don't often talk about this. But I think, you know, if you if you really love a film artist and and you have the opportunity to have some connection to them, uh, I mean, obviously you have to be very careful. But but it's only a human response, I think, to to want to reach out in some way, and and often, you know, you're disappointed with the person as opposed to the <laughs> artist. But that's that's natural and normal and, and to be expected. Uh, what ultimately matters is is the work itself, and and so it was sort of a, a journey for me uh, in writing the piece to come to terms with a lot of those feelings that I had. You know, I I think for myself, you know, like everybody else, so admiring the work of John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock, and and you know what. Would I have wanted to meet them? And you, because you, you know, so often with film directors, their reputations uh, are of of being difficult and control freaks. And you know, particularly some of the greats have personal characteristics which make them legendarily uh, difficult. And um, do you think that that you know, what for your experience, did it affect how you watched Altman's film that you got to know him a bit? Um, I don't, I, I tried very hard to separate it out and it's not like we were buddies, you know, this isn't yeah. Tuesdays with Bob piece. Um, but, but I, I, I think, you know, I've met enough filmmakers, enough actors, enough directors, enough writers that I, you know, greatly admire to, to sort of be able to separate out, you know, who they are from what they do. And I've almost never learned much about a particular f- filmmaker from meeting the filmmaker. I mean, often there's there's a real disconnect between who they are and what they what they make, and that was true of Altman too. I mean, Altman was, you know, was was a, a very expansive but crafty guy who who could be you know quite peremptory with people, and you know much more so than he ever was with me. Uh, but he took issue with with a lot of the stuff that I did as well. There was a time when I you know panned a lot of his movies. And uh, he, you know, wrote and he took me to task for it in an interview that he gave uh, for a magazine. And, you know, I mean, that's fine. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, it's still fascinating to me to meet these these characters, I should say, quote unquote, I mentioned in the piece, having met David Lean when he was promoting the, the the revamp of Lawrence of Arabia in the late 80s and his suite at the Bel Air Hotel. And, and we're talking about his films and suddenly he, he sort of, you know, jumps up on the couch it's almost like i'm not there and he's describing for me in in in, in saddening shot by shot detail uh, a scene from his aborted uh, mutiny on the bounty picture that, that dino de Laurentiis uh, killed um and uh you know it was it was an, an amazing startling experience you know, like bad. Said in the in the pieces he's sort of like mad royalty all of a sudden <laughs> and it, it begins with uh the more recent episode of quentin tarantino uh, accepting his uh, best screenplay award for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, with the New York film critics and specifically mentioning um, how difficult it was to have the critic he loved from reading your work in the Herald Examiner 
uh, pan some of his films. So, um, Peter, it's a wonderful piece. It's up on our Film Week page on Alta Online. A film critic takes direction from our own Peter Rayner. Peter, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Larry. Christian Science Monitor film critic Peter Rayner has been film critic with us on Film Week for decades. Film Week comes your way every Friday and Saturday on KPCC, but is available whenever you want to hear it on your smart speaker and uh, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great weekend.